Today I'd like to welcome to the Pod MD studio Professor David Stewart. Dr. David Stewart trained in medical oncology in the Department of Developmental Therapeutics at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas from 1976 to 1978. He was on staff at MD Anderson from 1978 to 1980 and from 2003 to 2011 and at the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada from 1980 to 2003 and from 2011 to the present. His research has focused on various oncology themes, including the negative impact of dysfunctional regulation and clinical trial designs on the rate of clinical research progress and the huge costs of this clinical research dysfunction in terms of increased healthcare costs and lives prematurely lost. He has more than 340 peer-reviewed publications. In April 2022, he published a book intended for patients entitled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, available through Amazon Books or his website, whycancerstillsucks.com. This book covers several topics, including why cancer is so common, limitations of screening, how cancer causes symptoms, different therapies, the future of cancer care, and more. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of cancer screening. This podcast is brought to you by OneCloud Voice and Data, helping business to connect. We do hope you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. David, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate it. The topic of today's discussion is cancer screening. David, can you give us a brief overview about cancer screening? Uh, well, I mean, there have been different uh, ways of doing cancer screening for many years now. Um, and the, the whole idea uh, is that the smaller a cancer is when it's discovered, uh, the higher the probability of cure. Or to put it another way, uh, from the time that a cancer still is initially formed, uh, it can spew off metastatic cells uh, to other parts of the body. And, uh, and the bigger it is, the higher the probability that, um, uh, that it will have um, allowed out uh, cancer cells that are going to establish themselves in other parts of the body. So uh, a tumor as small as one millimeter uh, already has about um, a billion cells in it uh, that uh, could, uh, uh, and every time it divides, some of the cells that are produced as, as they divide could go off into other parts of the body. By the time a, a cancer reaches a, about a centimeter across, if you um, if you look carefully in the um, in the bloodstream, uh, you can find up to a million cancer cells from that um, uh, from that uh, cancer. That's one centimeter cancer, uh, and so if you find cancers when they're small, it increases the probability of cure, but it does not guarantee it uh, because some of the cancer cells could have already established. But the, the the reason that cancers can be curable at all is many of the cancer cells that leave the cancer are sick cells and they are not capable of establishing metastases in other parts of the body. But the bigger they are, uh, the higher the probability that at least some of the tumor cells leaving the primary tumor uh, will become uh, capable of establishing metastatic disease. 
but some very, very large cancers can nevertheless be cured by surgery. Uh, some very small ones are incurable at, uh, because it, uh, it depends both on the size of the cancer as well as the characteristics of the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. um, who should undergo screening? Uh, essentially, the higher uh, the risk of the person, uh, the uh, the more that they gain from it. Uh, if people are very low risk, they uh, may not uh, drive much benefit, but high risk people should. So, for example, uh, uh, people that uh, have had prior uh, colon polyps should uh, undergo screening, uh, particularly, uh, or people that have a very strong family history of colorectal cancer should undergo screening. Uh, patients with a very strong family history of breast cancer should undergo uh, screening. Uh, uh, patients that um, uh, that um, have been heavy smokers in the past uh, should undergo screening for lung cancer. Uh, so, the, essentially, the higher the risk of the person, the more that they uh, could gain. And part of the risk is also age, so that uh, uh, the older somebody gets, then the higher the risk of cancer. Uh, and the, the reason for that is that uh, every day you're alive, about 100 billion cells in your body are dividing, and they've got an average of three mutations per uh, every cell dividing. So each one of us has about 300 billion uh, new mutations in our body every day. And the good news is that most of them are not important, or they can be repaired, uh, but some aren't. And so the, but, so the longer you're alive, the, uh, the higher the probability that some mutations will occur that uh, can uh, lead to the establishment of a cancer. Uh, so the, and the number one risk factor for developing cancer is just getting one day older. David, what are the limitations of screening? Uh, so that, again, the limitations are that uh, some very small cancers may nevertheless metastasize. Uh, so that uh, so that's an issue. So that uh, uh, even though people undergo screening, by the time the cancer is found, it may already be too um, uh, too big to uh, to cure. Uh, <clears throat> so that's one thing. Uh, and uh, so that, like, if a, if a one millimeter tumor can metastasize, usually you cannot detect that in any scan or any radiological procedure. Uh, so that um, so it's a good. It's okay for bigger tumors that are found early enough, so that that works. But some may be just too small to um, when they first start developing metastases. Uh, the other big thing is false positives, uh, so that many people who undergo a screening, they have a false positive. And essentially, the lower the risk you are, the higher the probability that any positive that's found will be a false positive. And for example, if, um, uh, if um, only one in 10,000 people uh, will have the malignancy, uh, uh, but uh, one in a hundred people will have a false positive, uh, so that uh, there will be many, many times as many false positives uh, as there will be true positives, and so and the false positives can lead to anxiety, uh, can lead to a, a lot of uh, additional uh, testing, uh, including some risks associated with it. So the radi uh, the radiation associated with. Uh, repeated scans or the uh, the risk of uh, serious or fatal complications from biopsies that may be on a false positive uh, so this is uh, uh, this is a, an issue uh, with screening the uh, just the fact that the uh, the false positives uh, may uh, lead to problems, uh, and the uh, but also that uh, the uh, they miss, may miss things. Also, a patient may undergo one screening exam and have nothing, then a year later undergo another one and find be found that they've got metastatic cancer, uh, just because the cancer may develop in that period in between uh, the screening episodes. Uh, so that's another uh, issue with screening as well.
But typically, though, for most screenings, you have to screen hundreds of people uh, to prevent one cancer death. Uh, and so that's a lot of people undergoing a lot of testing uh, to uh, just um, uh, prevent one death. The other issue is that when, uh, the, uh, when people present on screening, they'll often talk about relative risk reduction. <clears throat> so they may say that... Um, with uh, low dose CAT scanning uh, for heavy uh, for high dose uh, for heavy smokers, uh, that the relative reduction in uh, in risk of death uh, uh, from lung cancer uh, is um, is sixteen percent, uh, but the absolute reduction is only about um, um, one in two hundred fifty. Uh, so that you have to uh, so that the the relative risk reduction sound good, uh, but in fact the absolute reduction is uh, is actually quite small, and even that with um, lung cancer that uh, having to screen two hundred fifty people to prevent one death, that's far better than, for example, breast cancer, where you have to screen many times more people than that to prevent one death. So both of them prevent a lot of deaths, but you have to screen a lot of people to prevent one death. Uh-huh. Um, why are many cancers not detected until they are advanced and incurable? Uh, so the, the biggest problem there is that um, they produce no symptoms until they're quite large. So I often tell my patients with lung cancer that we'd be much better off if um, the cancer made people sick when it was very uh, small and drew attention to itself, but it just does not do that. And part of the problem is that um, the, um, the organs like the, uh, the lung and the pancreas and the liver, etc., cetera, uh, have very, very few, few nerve fibers. So people do not have pain until the cancer is large enough that it reaches the outside surface of the organ and starts to uh, invading into adjacent structures. And that, as that, at that point, uh, people start uh, developing pain. Or if there's a very large cancer, there may be what's referred to as visceral pain, but visceral pain is very poorly localized. People cannot tell really where it is. And uh, so this is a, a, a major reason uh, that uh, cancers can become very large um, before they're found. So some cancers, like breast cancer, a patient may, be, may feel it, um, and, uh, and so that draws attention to it. And that's one of the reasons that only 15% of people who develop breast cancers die from uh, because it may be found when it's uh, fairly small. Or a bowel cancer may bleed into the bowel, and may uh, so a person may see blood and may be detected that way. But for something like lung cancer, uh, it may produce no symptoms at all until it's quite far advanced. And then often when it does start um, producing symptoms, it may just be weight loss. The patient may still have an excellent appetite, and they'll just think that their their diet, they've been trying so, for so many years to lose weight for the, all these new diets, and finally they found a diet that, that works. Uh, so I tell all my friends, beware the diet that finally works, uh, because it may be uh, actually an indication of an advanced malignancy. Um, but um, eventually, uh, the, um, it uh, does also start producing loss of appetite and accelerate weight loss, so that could draw attention to itself. But it's just the, the, the fact that uh, the cancers will produce very few symptoms until they are far advanced. David, how might screening look different in the future? Uh, so in the future, uh, it may be a blood test. Uh, so right now, screening is, um, is mammography for breast cancer or pap smears for, um, for cervical cancer or uh, colonoscopy or, or fecal occult blood screening for colon cancer, etc. Uh, in the future, uh, it's very highly probable that it'll be a blood test. Uh, so that um, in the past, I was hoping that uh, we would just have to look for uh, evidence of a mutation that causes lung cancer. Uh, 
uh, or that caused another kind of cancer. But then uh, it was with great surprise when I read uh, articles that uh, those mutations may also occur in benign uh, diseases as well. For example, about 50% of malignant melanomas may have a BRAF mutation, but to up to 80% of some benign moles may have that same mutation. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other instances where uh, benign uh, conditions may have uh, cancer mutations. So just screening for the mutation would not be enough to, um, to do it. Uh, there are other things that um, look promising, uh, including looking for DNA methylation patterns because cancers have very distinct uh, DNA methylation patterns that are different from normal cells. Uh, so if you can find those, you may be able to determine not only that the malignancy is probably present, but also you may, uh, may give you a clue what organ to look in. Uh, also, uh, if you look at um, a gene copy number, uh, so cells with um, several um, uh, amplifications, several extra copies of a gene uh, might be an indication of a malignancy as well. Uh, and also there are other uh, chemicals that can be produced by the cancer uh, that may give uh, an indication that um, uh, cancer is present. So I think that there's a very high possibility that within by 10 to 20 years from now uh, that uh, screening will be with a blood test rather than uh, the current methods that are used. How does cancer cause appetite loss, weight loss and fatigue? Uh, the weight loss uh, is partly by causing appetite loss but um, also other things as well. Uh, so that in your normal cells in your body, as a cell is converting uh, sugar or glucose into energy, uh, it's being converted into uh, what's called ATP. So ATP are molecules, are energy molecules. So, and uh, when you break down uh, one glucose molecule, uh, to um, uh, it uh, will produce about 36 to 38 ATPs using the process oxidative phosphorylation that is used in most normal cells. Uh, when you're, uh, and that relies on a steady supply of both oxygen and glucose and, and sugar. When you're running, uh, then not enough oxygen can get to your cells rapidly enough in your muscles. So the muscle cells convert to what's called anaerobic glycolysis. So it's a way of breaking down glucose that does not require oxygen. And uh, when that happens, uh, the, uh, the cells can break down oxygen uh, or glucose very rapidly, but each glucose molecule only produces two um, ATPs rather than 36 to 38 ATPs. And so it wastes energy, uh, but the advantage is it can produce uh, those ATPs much faster than through oxidative phosphorylation. So it's a very fast way of producing it. And in the, in the process, uh, the muscles produce lactic acid as they break it down, whereas your nor the other normal cells produce instead carbon dioxide. Now, with cancer, they do something that's very unique. Uh, they, relieve on what, uh, they rely on what's called the Warburg phenomenon, which is aerobic glycolysis. Uh, so that instead of using oxidative phosphorylation, uh, they will break down um, the, uh, the glucose using um, uh, glycolysis. And so just two ATPs are produced per glucose molecule. Uh, and uh, so very inefficient, but they can produce those two glucoses much faster than they could by oxidative phosphorylation. So they can outcompete the normal cells in their environment. They're using oxidative phosphorylation, uh, so because they're producing those ATPs much faster. And so as long as they've got a ready supply of glucose, um, then they can uh, they can uh, uh, burn them very rapidly to produce uh, uh, ATPs. Uh, the other thing is, as they produce uh, lactic acid, uh, that lactic acid is toxic to immune cells and also to the surrounding normal cells. So again, they can poison the surrounding normal cells and they can 
and poison immune cells. So that gives the cancer cells a real growth advantage. Uh, in the process of doing that, they waste energy so that, um, uh, so that um, uh, a cancer might use up uh, as many as 1,500 uh, calories per day uh, just through that process. So that uh, causes weight loss, even if you've got good appetite. But the other things that the cancer does, uh, as, the, as the cancer is growing, immune cells invade into the cancer. And as the immune cells invade and they produce cytokines, uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the cytokines, the immune cells come in and produce the cytokines like TNF or tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6. Uh, they will uh, directly um, impair appetite uh, by um, by affecting the appetite center, uh, and so that is what begins to uh, for, lead to appetite loss in patients. Uh, the other thing also is that um, uh, they will slow down the stomach uh, musculature, uh, so the stomach does not empty as rapidly. Uh, so the patient will eat a big breakfast, and then their stomach stays full, so they cannot eat lunch or dinner because the stomach is still full. So that also happens as all of these cytokines. Uh, the other thing the cytokines do is they will actually break down muscle, uh, so that uh, they will uh, that will uh, lead to um, what's called cachexia, uh, so muscle breakdown to produce glucose for the uh, for the tumor. And uh, so if you're on a, a desert island and you have no food, uh, then your, your body will try to preserve muscle by breaking down fat. Uh, but instead, what the cancer does, through these cytokines produced by the immune system, actually breaks down, um, uh, breaks down um, uh, muscle to feed the cancer uh, with, uh, with glucose. Um, the, the, the cytokines also impair lipid metabolism, so there's faulty lipid metabolism, so you cannot form fat, and there's faulty utilization of fat uh, as a result of the, um, uh, the um, uh, cytokines as well. And the cytokines, at the same time that they're, uh, they're doing this, um, they, uh, they're, not only, they're not just breaking down muscle, uh, but also other organs like heart and lung and uh, even brain, so that if you do, do careful cognitive testing on patients with cancer, you often find that their cognitive impaired uh, because of the effect of these cytokines on, on, the, on the brain. Uh, the, also, there can be excess serotonin production, and the serotonin will actually lead to a food wastage syndrome. So people will feel hungry, and they'll start to eat, but they'll chew and chew and chew and just cannot get it to go down. And this is similar to what's called food wastage that's seen in, in, uh, in rodents with too much um, uh, serotonin. Uh, so that it's the impact on um, uh, on both the energy wastage uh, that uh, and also on muscle breaking down muscle uh, that leads to uh, the, to weakness and fatigue in patients with uh, with cancer. David, what is the best treatment for cancer induced appetite loss, weight loss, and fatigue? Uh, by far the best uh, uh, treatment is just treating the cancer. Uh, if you make the cancer shrink, uh, then that will often improve all of those things. Uh, so back in the old days, we thought that um, treating the cancer, we might get prolongation of life expectancy by a little bit, uh, but there'd be worse quality of life because of the side effects of the treatment. But in fact, what the, what the studies kept on showing was the quality of life was better with treatment of the cancer because making the cancer shrink uh, improved quality of life, improved things like appetite and, uh, and, uh, and weight loss and, uh, and fatigue and a whole bunch of other things. So despite the side effects of, the, uh, of it. Now, the other thing that helps with um, fatigue uh, is just being more active. Again, in the old days, we used to tell people to rest a lot, but that was the wrong advice because then the muscles just soften up uh, 
and uh, the more active a person can be, uh, the better. So exercise is very important in, uh, in, uh, in cancer patients to try to keep the, uh, the, uh, the muscles uh, in shape. Uh, other things that help for people that uh, uh, find that they fill up fast and, uh, and uh, are still full at lunch from, uh, from breakfast is eating six small meals a day uh, often works better than uh, eating three large meals a day. What are a couple of oncology myths and legends that patients may ask their physicians about? Okay, so that uh, there are all sorts of oncology myths and legends that some that patients have, some that um, uh, physicians have, some that oncologists have. Uh, but the, probably the two that I hear most frequently from my from my patients, uh, one is uh, don't eat sugar because if you eat sugar, it will just feed the cancer. Uh, but it doesn't make any difference how much sugar you uh, that you eat. Uh, the cancer will feed itself just by breaking down your muscle. Uh, so a diet is uh, one, so a diet is important in getting cancer. So if you eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, you're less likely to get it. But once you have it, diet um, is um, uh, does not have all that big an impact. And eating. Uh, Avoiding sugar does not really help treat the cancer. Uh, so that's one of them. Uh, another big one that uh, I've heard frequently is uh, that surgery will make the cancer spread faster. Exposing the cancer to air uh, will make it feel uh, spread, spread faster. Uh, and that was based on the um, on the, uh, what used to happen before we had scans. So somebody would present with a cancer uh, and they would undergo exploratory surgery where they'd open it up, see that there was very extensive cancer, couldn't remove it and just close them up again. And the patient would, was, uh, would die rapidly. That was going to happen anyway. Uh, but uh, to the patient... And their family, it appeared that the uh, the surgery had made the cancer spread faster, uh, but uh, but it actually uh, doesn't do that in simple terms. Or putting it another way, surgery is by the best, by far the best way to cure a localized cancer, and um, and so uh, so much better to do it. Having said that, if you do remove a large cancer, uh, then uh, as the cancer grows, um, you get what's called comparsian growth. So the growth rate does slow down. And if you remove the large cancer, there's less competition for nutrients. Um, and so you will get um, uh, increased rapidity of, of cancer growth after that. Uh, but if it's, if it's all small, uh, then the trick then is to get the patient onto adjuvant treatment after that. Uh, to, to if, So that if there is any residual cancer, uh, to kill off those tumor cells. Um, but uh, for patients that tell me that they want to not undergo surgery because it'll make the cancer spread faster, uh, that's uh, not usually the case. And among oncologists, uh, by far the most common uh, oncology myth and legend is that the blood-brain barrier is important, uh, that uh, it will protect uh, tumors in the brain from uh, from chemotherapy. Uh, but that's probably not, uh, that has minimal impact of any. It does, the blood-brain barrier does keep um, uh, drugs out of the uh, out of the normal brain, but the reason that cancers, uh, that brain metastases light up on scans is because of the fact that the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. So the the, uh, the contrast medium gets out into the, into, into the tumor, and that's why it lights up. Also, the reason that edema around the tumors because the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. Uh, but um, uh, we did uh, uh, many studies years ago that showed that high concentrations of chemotherapy drugs are achieved in human brain tumors, even if uh, only low concentrations are achieved in the normal central nervous system. Um, and, um, and also, uh, so people would say, well, patients with brain metastases, they don't live as long as people with metastatic disease that uh, don't have brain metastases. And that's true, except for the fact that um, uh, that um, uh, patients, they the life expectancy of patients with brain metastases is identical to the life expectancy of patients with liver metastases 
or bone metastases or adrenal metastases or subcutaneous metastases. The trick is that if you've got metastatic disease, but not in the brain, there's a high probability that you'll be stage M1A disease, which means metastases just in the lungs and the pleura only. And those patients have much better prognosis. Uh, so that if you compare patients with brain metastases to patients without brain metastases, the group you're comparing to them is a lot of patients that um, are stage M1A disease that have better prognosis. So that's why it looks like the brain metastases are doing so much worse, uh, but it's no worse than liver or bone or adrenal metastases. Uh, but it has uh, some major negative um, uh, consequences uh, if we uh, treat patients with brain metastases different from patients with um, other, other patients with metastatic disease. How will cancer treatment look different in the future? We can't say for sure. All I can say for sure is that it will look different and as long as we keep on doing research. And the reason I can say that is because things look so much different now than they did 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, things keep on changing rapidly. So as long as we do the research, uh, things are going to keep on changing rapidly. Now, there will be some areas that uh, don't uh, change very much or that don't change nearly enough. Other things that will change a lot. Uh, for example, currently we, uh, we use adjuvant chemotherapy. So people that have undergone surgical resection of a tumor, uh, we'll give them chemotherapy to try to eradicate any residual cancer. Uh, by about 10 years from now, we'll, we'll, we'll no longer be doing that. Instead, we'll be doing a blood test a couple of weeks or two or three weeks after the surgery. And if we can still find circulating uh, tumor cells or circulating tumor DNA at that point, we will know that there's residual cancer. And so we'll be treating for minimal residual disease rather than being a so-called adjuvant treatment. If we cannot find any residual cancer cells or tumor cells, then there'll be a high probability that the patient will be cured. Uh, so that's very one, one very important um, thing in the future. Also, uh, like right now, immunotherapy has um, uh, has radically changed things over the past uh, uh, eight or ten years, uh, and um, but and that's just by tackling two of what's called the immune checkpoints. Uh, so your body has uh, many checkpoints to keep your immune system from attacking your normal cells, but they can also protect uh, tumor cells from the immune system as well. And so right now, the two that we can target are, are the uh, CTLA4 system with ipilimumab map and the um, PD-1, PD-L1 system with drugs like nivolumab and pembrolizumab. But there's a total of at least 13 immune checkpoints in the body, uh, and some of them are probably very important in uh, situations where uh, we um, uh, where we cannot, um, uh, that are not successfully treated with current immune checkpoints. Uh, and, uh, and so over the next few years, uh, we'll, we're going to be getting lots more information on the impact of, uh, of blocking some of those other immune checkpoints. And it's highly probable that some of them at least will be very, very useful in, in treating uh, cancers that uh, are now not sensitive to, uh, uh, to immunotherapy. In the future also, that uh, in the more distant future, there'll be far more personalization of therapy. Uh, so that, uh, for example, uh, there is, are some drugs that are being uh, used now called uh, uh, bites or bispecific T-cell engagers, uh, where one arm of that um, uh, antibody uh, targets a, a, a tumor antigen, and will stick to a tumor cell, and the other uh, arm will stick to an immune cell. And so it'll bring the immune T-cell in close to the uh, tumor cell uh, so that the, uh, so that the uh, 
tumor cell, or the T cell can uh, kill the tumor cell. Um, but in the future, I envision that uh, we'll be looking for neoantigens produced on the on the, your individual tumor cells, and we'll be able to ra very rapidly uh, build a warhead uh, that will recognize uh, that uh, neoantigen unique to your tumor and attach it to that bite. Uh, so it'll be what. Um, uh, so these will, the the bites will be off the shelf. Uh, that'll have uh, one arm to attach to T cell. The other arm will have a free end that uh, we can then uh, attach something that's unique to you. Uh, so it will be able to attack your specific tumor cells. So I think um, the technology could already be there to do this. It's already there, uh, but it's going to take us uh, uh, 10 or 20 years to figure out how to do it. David, thank you for your time here today in the PodMD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast on cancer screening? Uh, so on cancer screening, uh, high-risk people, it's, uh, it's uh, very helpful, very important. Low-risk people, uh, it's much more likely to, um, uh, to, um, uh, to be a false positive. So you just have to bear that in mind in deciding whether or not to, um, to screen uh, low-risk people. Uh, so uh, the, uh, one of my colleagues here, uh, who's the head of our breast screening program, has pointed out to me that uh, if they screen young patients who have low risk, they will nevertheless save a lot of lives, but they'll have a, a large number of false positives. So it's just something to discuss with patients, the pros and cons of screening, uh, if, particularly if they're low risk. If they're high risk, uh, then no question they should be screened uh, and, uh, and it will have a higher probability of saving their life. Uh, the other thing with, uh, with screening uh, is that in the future, uh, in the not too distant future, maybe a blood test rather than uh, the current ways that we're doing it. Thanks again for your time, David, and the insights you have provided. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And again, if anybody wants more information, uh, they can find it in my book, A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks. Uh, and that book uh, is easily obtained through Amazon Books or from, uh, from my web website, whycancerstillsucks.com. Uh, and in the book, I actually cover a lot of different things, so uh, including why cancer is so common, uh, screening, uh, different treatment methods, um, oncology myths and legends, uh, uh, but also systems issues, uh, uh, why it takes uh, far too long to develop new anti-cancer drugs, um, and uh, how that uh, contributes to both uh, an excess loss of life because uh, there's delay in uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, approving new drugs, but also has a key driving factor in the incredibly high cost of drugs. Uh, the cost of drug development has uh, has soared massively over the past uh, few decades, and that's uh, that directly contributes to the very high cost of drugs. Uh, I also co cover um, the differences in the Canadian and American healthcare systems, and some of it might be uh, applicable also to the Australian system, but just to showing how the, the, the strengths and weaknesses in those two uh, and uh, that there is no one perfect uh, healthcare system.